so good to be back and teaching uh, from God's Word this morning, and I ask that we ready our hearts uh, to hear from the Lord, and we'll do that in a few ways this morning. First, we're going to pray, so let us pray together. Lord, as we uh, come to your Word this morning, uh, Lord, we pray that the freeing weight of the Gospel uh, would resonate with our ears, our heart, Lord, our mind, Lord, that we would experience maybe for the very first time, what it truly means to walk in freedom. And for those of us here this morning that have already received you as our Lord and Savior, Lord, that you would be so good to us that we would rediscover what it means to walk in the freedom that you have for us, to know that you give us life eternal life and abundant life in Christ Jesus. So do what only you can do in the hearts of the people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. The second thing we're going to do to ready ourselves is we're going to turn to Jonah chapter 2. Jonah chapter 2, we're going to look at uh, specifically verse 10 in chapter 2 all the way through uh, verse 10 in chapter 3. If you're joining with us on campus and you do not have a copy of God's Word, I would encourage you to look underneath the seat in front of you or underneath the seat that you're sitting in. Uh, there should be a Bible there. I would encourage you to open up that Bible uh, to page 862. 862 this morning we are going to look at how God brings life and what an amazing opportunity we have uh, to be under God's Word this morning and not just this morning but every day uh, that we live. And we uh, have been in the book of Jonah for uh, several weeks now. This is our fourth week. And uh, it doesn't take long to get into the book of Jonah to recognize that really Jonah is a mirror to all of our hearts, right? Uh, in many ways, we are very much like Jonah. Consider the context of what we've already learned in the first two chapters. Uh, Jonah has been given a divine commission by the Lord, a very specific, very succinct, very clear God has spoken to him, and Jonah, the prophet that God has already used, decides to run, right? Where God called him to go 550 miles to the east, Jonah chooses to flee uh, 2,000 miles to the west, right? And God, God uh, is not letting Jonah go, if you will. Even though Jonah has fled triangly from the presence of the Lord, uh, he has uh, created great disruption, not only in his life, but the lives of those around him. Jonah is in a place where he is exhausted. And guess what? Jonah doesn't even know that he needs to be rescued. But God does. And God chooses to intervene. And God uses multiple ways of intervening in Jonah's life. He sends a violent storm. And ultimately, at the uh, closing of chapter 1, verse 17, we find that God himself appoints a fish, a great fish, to swallow Jonah whole, right? The fish had a specific mission by God to rescue Jonah from himself. And what we find in Jonah chapter 2 for the uh, primary part of it is Jonah can't run anymore, right? God has him exactly where he wants him. He has Jonah's undivided attention. And through all the wrestling, Jonah now has to recognize who the Lord is, right? And that's the beauty of chapter 2. The scripture says in Jonah 2 verse uh, 7 that, that Jonah remembered the Lord. Man, how amazing is that in the life of a rebellion? When we rebel from the Lord and God puts us in a place where there is no more running, and he, by his grace, 
allows us to remember him again. And that's where Jonah is. And in verse 8 and 9, what powerful words. Jonah says this, those who pay regard to vain idols do what? They forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. When Jonah chose to go his own way, when he chose to pursue those vain idols, his identity was shaken. The very purpose that God had for him was robbed, and his joy and peace were no longer present. But now he remembers the Lord. And guess what? He begins to rediscover all the blessings that had been there all along. Now the question is, what happens next? Well, that's why we read beginning in Jonah chapter 2, verse 10. We'll read all of our passages this morning, and then we'll uh, begin to unpack it. So uh, verse 10, the scripture says, And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles. Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Verse 10. When God saw what they did, he turned from their evil, how they turned from their evil way. God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them and he did not do it. What an amazing passage. And in this passage, we see how God brings life. And we're going to see how God brings life to both Jonah and to the people of Nineveh. And there's two main observations that I want us to look at in this particular passage as it pertains to how God brings life. He does it first by restoration. Restoration. When Jonah went 10 rounds of choosing to flee from God. Guess what? God chose to go 11 rounds to rescue him, but not just to rescue him, to restore him. And how is this possible? It's the undeserved second chance. The undeserved second chance. How many of you can say praise God for the undeserved second chance? Man. The undeserved second chance. Notice some of the elements of Jonah's undeserved second chance. The verse 10 says, And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Now we read that verse, and there are several questions that I, I would like to be answered, right? What did Jonah look like? I mean, what did he smell like? I mean, how many of us as parents have experienced the, the hurling of things in the backseat of a van that goes deep into the crevices of a seat buckle, and that smell just happens to be there for a very, very long time? I would want to know, what did he smell like, right? There are some questions that we want answered, maybe. But here's the beauty of that verse, verse 10. The scripture says that God sovereignly caused the great fish to vomit Jonah back to dry land. Now, we don't know exactly where that dry land was, 
But it helps us to think that maybe God just so happened, by his grace, put Jonah right back where he first told God no. The undeserved second chance. Then the scripture says in the first part of verse 1, then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. You know, I love not only what the Bible says, I also love what it does not say. Think about this for just a moment. The Bible doesn't say that when Jonah rebelled against the Lord, that the Lord held a grudge against him. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say that God rubbed Jonah's nose and all the mistakes and all the sin and all the rebellion that he once committed. It doesn't say any of those things. It doesn't even say that that Jonah had to fix himself up, that he had to clean himself up again. No, it simply says that God spoke to Jonah a second time. God was determined to show grace by taking the initiative. He spoke to Jonah a second time. He gave him a do-over, a restart, a mulligan, right? I haven't golfed in probably 11 years. I'm not a great golfer, but I'm fun to golf with, right? One of the great challenges that those of us who aren't uh, well-prepared for the golf course experience is that dreaded first hole. Why? Because you have the people sitting there who are very experienced golfers, and they're watching to make sure that, that you're teeing off properly, you got your tee time and all that stuff, and it's like you're, like, dear Lord Jesus, just let me hit this thing straight, right? Like, let this be the best tee shot of my life, right? The pressure, right? And here we see that Jonah, by God's grace, gives him a second chance, an undeserved do-over. You see, the grace of God reminds us that we have his permission to get up again, to get up again and again and again. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that in the midst of rebellion, God is not dealing with our sin. Yes, God is a just God, and he will deal with our sin, but he's also forgiving. These verses address all of our doubts. You see, God knows everything that Jonah has done. He sees everything that I have done and what you have done, and yet he chooses to give an undeserved second chance. For every follower of Christ, This is why Romans 8 and 1 matter so much. Remember Romans 7. Paul is talking about the struggle between doing good, the things that God desires him to do, and the the lack of power to fulfill it, and the things that he doesn't want to do, he finds himself doing over and over and over again. And then you get to Romans 8, chapter uh, 8, 8, verse 1. Therefore what? Therefore there is uh, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Man, praise be to God for that. There is no longer condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. As the prophet Jeremiah reminds us in Jeremiah 31, God loves us with what? An everlasting love. He chooses to be faithful to us. He will faithfully rebuild you. He will faithfully adorn you. He will faithfully replant you. In other words, you cannot exhaust God's grace. So we see restoration in the form of an undeserved second chance, but we also see restoration in the form of renewed obedience. Renewed obedience. Uh, Notice what the Lord says when Uh, he came to Jonah the second time. Remember, he spoke to Jonah a second time, and the scripture says at the second part of verse 1, saying what? Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. Verse 3, so Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. And this is the beauty of it. The, the same, basically the same thing that God just told Jonah to do in chapter 3 is, is basically the same thing that God told Jonah to do in chapter 1. Jonah 1 verse 2, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Listen, Jonah deserved absolutely nothing from God, right? 
God owed Jonah absolutely nothing. God could have chosen, rightly, to send somebody else to the people of Nineveh. But God chooses to do what? In the midst of restoration, in the midst of that undeserved second chance, he gives Jonah an opportunity to do what? To have renewed obedience in the Lord. God gave Jonah a chance to obey the word of God. And here's what Jonah experienced in that moment. Jonah learned that failure is never final, right? In the midst of that undeserved second chance, there's also an opportunity for renewed obedience. God is recommissioning Jonah to go and do what he wanted him to do in the very first place. Do you believe today that failure is never final in your life? That you have an opportunity to be restored by God, to have a renewed obedience in the Lord. Consider some of the people in the Bible. Noah, Abraham, Moses, Rahab, David, Samson, Matthew, Peter, and Paul. Every single one of them had a past filled with what? Failures. And yet God still chose in his grace to give them an opportunity towards renewed obedience in the Lord. You know, a lot has happened since the first time Jonah heard the very words from God in chapter 1. But Jonah's call did not change. God's will did not change. What changed? Jonah changed. The word of the Lord means a whole lot more to him today than it did back then, right? It had a new meaning through all the running, through all the fleeing, through the the time in the belly of the fish. The same word of God that was spoken previously in his life that uh, he wasn't so sensitive to now because of all those things. The word of God gripped his heart, right? And he arose and did as the Lord had commanded. Don't miss the beauty of God's grace. Even in the midst of Jonah's rebellion against God, he still used that to reshape his heart, right? I mean, we, we love Romans eight twenty eight, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. How many of y'all love that verse? Amen to that. Is it possible that in God's sovereignty that he can use even our rebellion to reshape our hearts for the good that he desires for us? Absolutely. That's exactly what happens. God even uses our rebellion to reshape our hearts towards his will and calling in our lives. Through everything that Jonah experienced, he recognized firsthand his utter need for the very grace that he was trying to withhold from the people of Nineveh. The word of the Lord finally lands on his heart and he finally obeys. Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. The psalmist experienced this. In Psalm 119, verse 67, the scripture says, Before I was afflicted, I went what? I went astray, right? But now I keep your word. You see, God's second chance in your life and my life isn't a new deal. Again, God has not changed. His, still, his will is still his will. His commands are still his commands. This reminds us that, that God in his grace not only gives us forgiveness of when we run, but that power of grace gives us a desire and a passion for that renewed obedience. God was using Jonah's affliction from his rebellion to knock out all the props that he kept running to, right? He's running to all the things, denying the Lord, trying to get away from the presence of God, and yet one by one, what is God doing? He's knocking out one prop after another prop after another prop so that Jonah would get to a place that he would be restored. An undeserved second second, um, calling in his life second chance, and an opportunity for renewed obedience. Have you experienced restoration today? That undeserved second chance and that time of renewed obedience in the Lord, that's how he brings life. Secondly, he also brings life through repentance, through repentance. 
uh, the primary focus in our passage begins to shift off of Jonah uh, to the people of Nineveh. It's, it's a slight shift. It happens more abruptly in just, a, in just a second. But listen to what it says in the second part of verse 3. The scripture says, Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breath. Uh, that phrase, they're exceedingly great, uh, is important because it occurs four separate times in the book of Jonah. Uh, how do we define uh, this idea that uh, the city of Nineveh was exceedingly great? Uh, well, we know, according to the scripture, that it was great in size. The scripture says that it's three days' journey in breadth. Uh, archaeologists would say that the inner part of the city, what we would deem as downtown, uh, was roughly seven miles. But the outer part of the city, the suburbs of the city, uh, could have stretched approximately 40 miles. Uh, we also know that uh, the city of Nineveh was great in its wickedness. Uh, you go to the book of uh, Nahum, the, uh, Nahum chapter 3 specifically, it talks about the cruelty and the violence of uh, the people of Nineveh. Uh, but here's what I love about the original language, the Hebrew language. The way that the verse is structured in the Hebrew language communicates that the city of Nineveh was great according to the eyes of the Lord. Meaning that God had a heart for the wicked people of Nineveh. And because God had a heart for the wicked people of Nineveh, he sends Jonah with what? A message, a message to the people. In verse 4, it says, Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. In the English, it's eight words. In the original Hebrew, it's five words, right? That's pretty amazing to me. And what I love about uh, the, the, the calling that God put on his life and, and the words that God gave to, to Jonah, th- those five simple yet powerful words, it expresses a lot about his heart for the people of Nineveh. Think about uh, the urgent call, right? There's an urgent call here to turn from what you're doing, right? Uh, think about uh, the number 40. Just think about it, the number 40 in, in all of redemptive history. Just a few uh, places where that number 40 shows up. Uh, think about uh, in Genesis, the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 7. Uh, the, the 40 days of, of rain to, to express what? Judgment, right? You go to the book of Exodus. You have the number 40 shows up again. But now it's 40 years of, of a time where God is leading uh, through Moses, his people, uh, through the wilderness. And what was the purpose of that 40 years of going through the wilderness? It was a, the purpose of purification, right? And then you get to the New Testament in Matthew 4 when it says that Jesus was led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days to be tempted by Satan, but tested by the Lord, right? To show that that this one Jesus is the perfect son of God. And so you have this number 40 that represents an opportunity for judgment and purification and testing. The word overthrown is an important word in what Jonah shared to the Ninevites, the word that God gave him. The the word overthrown in the original Hebrew uh, has uh, two different primary meanings. Uh, The first can mean uh, to turn upside down. That word, that same word is used in Genesis 19 when, when God was speaking judgment over the people of Sodom and Gomorrah that I'm going to turn this city literally upside down. However, it also can mean to turn around, to turn around. Uh, the same word is used in 1 Kings chapter 22 when the king speaks to the driver of the chariot and says what? You need to turn this thing around. So think about that for just a minute. The point is these words were given as an urgent warning to the people of Nineveh to express God's desire for them to turn from their wicked ways or do what? Face the very judgment of God, right? And when you survey the Bible, God has always had a heart for the people in the city, right? I mean, think about Jesus for just a minute. When Jesus enters into Jerusalem, it says that he, with deep, felt, gut-wrenching compassion, saw the crowds, had compassion on them because they were 
harassed and helpless sheep without a shepherd, right? The same is true when we look in the Old Testament account of God's heart for the city. It reminds me of a time uh, during Israel's history uh, where they're getting ready to go into captivity uh, to the Babylonians and God raises up the prophet Jeremiah uh, to remind the people of God of one of the purposes of why they're in exile. Obviously, it came because of their disobedience to the Lord, but God is still going to use that as an opportunity for renewed uh, obedience in him. And and God says through the prophet Jeremiah that when you go to uh, that territory in Babylon, what is one of your purposes for being there? I love it. The scripture says in Jeremiah, 29 verse 7 but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare you will find your welfare you would think that when God thinks about the wicked people of Babylon that he would say Israel you go into the city and you judge them right but he doesn't say that he says you seek their welfare the word welfare in the Hebrew is the word shalom You seek their restoration. You seek their reconciliation. You seek their wholeness, their completeness. That's your role in the people there. As you're in exile because of your disobedience, you have a mission. Seek the welfare of the city. The same is true for us. God is, we are in exile in many ways, right? And God says, seek the welfare of the city. Now the question is, are five words enough, right? I mean, think about where God has positioned you in the city. The influence that you can have within the city. The question that we struggle with day in and day out is five words enough. In other words, is the gospel sufficient, right? Is the gospel sufficient? The Apostle Paul thought it was sufficient. Romans 1, 16 through 17, the scripture says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. In other words, I am not losing confidence in the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation, the undeserved second chance, right? To everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek, even to the Ninevites, right? For in it is the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So not only is the gospel sufficient enough to bring us to a place of salvation, but the gospel is sufficient enough for us to walk in a place of righteousness. And what happens is when uh, Jonah goes and shares the word that God had given to him, a great awakening begins to happen in Nineveh. A great revival, if you will, begins to happen in Nineveh. And there's a place of great repentance And this is important. How do we understand repentance? Well, through the people of Nineveh, we get an amazing picture of what true repentance looks like in the hearts of people. First, we see that they're turning to God. They're turning to God. In other words, when God sends the message, his desire is salvation, right? He desires for people to be saved. And that's what we see in the first part of verse 5. It says that when the message, as the message was going out, the scripture says, and the people of Nineveh did what? They believed God. That means they believed God's assessment of them. Yes, they were guilty, right? They believed what God had said. They agreed that their appraisal, according to God, was they are guilty of their sin. They didn't plead their case on why, how, or what. They just went to the who, right? That's what they did. They went to the who. They submitted to him. They submitted to the Lord. And and even when uh, the word got to the king, the scripture says what? In the second part of verse 8, and let them, this is the king speaking, and let them call out mightily to God. That word mightily talks about an urgency, a a strength behind it. In other words, when Jonah faithfully proclaimed God's word, there was an urgent call to turn to the Lord. And I love it. Because remember it said 40 days, right? You got 40 days to get your act together. They didn't wait 40 days, did they? It reminds us of 
uh, how many of us do a diet, right? So let's say you're going to start a diet tomorrow. All right? Some of us take the position, I'm just going to crush today, right? I'm just going to, I'm going to live it up today and I'm going to start tomorrow, right? That's not what they did. They didn't live it up for 39 days and say, okay, today we're going to turn to the Lord. No, the, the moment that the word of God uh, convicted them, they turned immediately to the Lord. They understood the seriousness, seriousness of their situation. And the king himself said this in verse 9, Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. In other words, though they were so undeserving of God's mercy, they chose to turn to the very one who could be merciful, right? God was their only hope. And the same truth is for us today, that God is our only hope. That's why God has given us his word. That's why God has implanted us into the city, if you will, so that we can go and share the gospel with great confidence, great assurance that God is our only hope. So much so that the Apostle Paul says in Romans 10, verse 13, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Do you believe that today? Are you turning to the Lord today? That's what the scripture is teaching us in true repentance. The second thing that it teaches us about true repentance is a mourning over sin. There's a mourning over your sin. When God's word came to them, there was a deep conviction over their sin. We see this in the second part of verse 5. It says, They, speaking of the townspeople, uh, called for a fast to put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Verse 6, The word reached the king of Nineveh. In other words, before Jonah could even get there, guess what was spreading quicker? The word of God was going even faster than Jonah could go. And what was the king's response? And he arose from his throne, a place of honor. He removed his robe, a symbol of royalty. He covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes, an expression of deep humility before the Lord. In other words, he identified himself just like the rest of the people, right? That's exactly what's happening here. There was grief, sorrow, humiliation over their sin, so much so that this is what the king does in verse 7. He says, And he, the king, issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. There was such a mourning over sin that there was a city mandate, if you will, a national mandate of turning to God, mourning over your sin, so much so that even the animals... Even the animals were mourning, right? All of those external actions, the fasting, the removing of robes, the putting on sackcloth, the sitting in ashes, are all indicators of an inward change, and that was exactly what was happening. This single-sentence sermon brought about probably the greatest, if not the greatest, uh, evangelical awakening, the history we have ever known, right? People turning to the Lord, mourning over their sin. The question is, do you mourn over your sin today? Remember what the half-brother of Jesus, James, says in James chapter 4. He says in verse 9, Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Now the context here is uh, James is contrasting uh, worldly wisdom with heavenly wisdom. And he's saying worldly wisdom says, Don't take your sin seriously. The philosophy of the day, eat, drink, be merry, for tomorrow we die. Right? Do whatever you want, live however you want. It doesn't matter. That's the way the world is going to pursue you to live, challenge you to live. But there is a heavenly wisdom that doesn't say that at all. Heavenly wisdom doesn't say live however you want. Heavenly wisdom says submit yourself to the Lord. Grieve over your sin. Mourn over your sin. Weep over your sin. As a child of God, when's the last time you mourned over your sin? 
Or do you find yourself adopting to the philosophy of the world? It's not that big of a deal. Man, we have so blurred the lines when it, com- the lines when it comes to the holiness of God and the standard of God and the c- commands of God that we, we think we're living for the Lord, but essentially, we're just mimicking the world standard, right? James says, there's a heavenly wisdom. Embrace that heavenly wisdom. True repentance sees sin the way God sees sins. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 7.10, he says, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. In other words, true repentance isn't just sorry you got caught, right? True repentance is I have sinned against the Lord. That's exactly what the scripture is teaching us. You see, the point is false repentance never changes the inside. Again, it's just sorry it got caught. That's it. False repentance makes excuses. True repentance assumes responsibility. False repentance fears the approval of others. True repentance realizes that sin is ultimately against God. False repentance grieves only over the consequences of sin. True repentance grieves over the sin itself. False repentance tries to fix it on their own. True repentance surrenders themselves to the Lord. And that's what God desires in the midst of our mourning over our sin, is to submit ourselves to him. David writes in Psalm 51, verse 17, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. God will honor you when you mourn properly over your sin. Third, another characteristic of true repentance is turning from sin, turning from sin. The king says something very important uh, in, uh, towards the end of verse 8. He says, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. It's a very personal call, right? Your personal sin. Turn away from it. And he says that we are to turn away from your evil way. Uh, that word, that phrase there, evil way, talks about how sin distorts and twists truth, right? That's what it's talking about. But then he also uses the word violence. In other words, there was great cruelty among the people, the way that they treated one another unjustly. And I began to think about how this shows itself uh, within the people of God, right? This is not just a Nineveh problem. This is a God people problem as well. How we twist and distort the truth of God, how we uh, act cruelty, act cruelly among the people around us. I remember uh, the prophet Joel. Uh, during the time of uh, when Joel was prophesying, God raised him up. Uh, the people of God were experiencing uh, the, the amazing blessings of the Lord, right? But their hearts were so far from God. They were twisting God's word. They were distorting God's word. They were acting cruelly to one another. And the scripture says this in Joel chapter 2, verse 12. Yet even now declares the Lord, return to me. In other words, stop your wandering. Turn to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. In other words, stop living a double life. Turn from your sin that you once cherished, and turn to me, your everlasting love. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Think about what God's word is teaching us. What good is it to impress the ones around you when you're being held captive to the very things that God has freed you from? What good is it to dress the part and have the lip service of the part but not, and not allow God to have your heart? Right? Listen, repentance is a gift from God and that's the way we need to see it. Why? Because repentance is an invitation to the freedom that he has for us. And so the scripture says, rend your hearts, not your garments. It's about what's happening on the inside 
not on the outside. Therefore, turn from your sin. And lastly, another component of true repentance is receiving the mercy of God. Receiving the mercy of God. What's God's response in all of this? Verse 10, the scripture says, When God saw uh, what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of their disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Now, there's a challenge in this particular verse, because for some, uh, you may have a translation that says that God repented, right? In other words, God changed his mind. Now, that should throw up a lot of red flags when it deals with our theology. Does, Does God change his mind? The answer is no. God is an unchanging God, right? But God does keep his promise, right? And sometimes those promises are conditional. That's exactly what uh, was said to the people of Nineveh through Jonah. In other words, in 40 days, if you don't turn to the Lord, there's going to be judgment. There's going to be disaster. However, if you turn to the Lord, the Lord will relent, right? So he's a promise-keeping God. And, And the prophet Jeremiah helps us with this. In Jeremiah 18, verses 7 through 8. Now, the the context is different. Where Jonah is going to the people of Nineveh, those who aren't followers of the Lord, Jeremiah is speaking to the people of God, who are also in disobedience. And this is what the scripture says. If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom, that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it. And if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. In other words, it's a conditional promise, right? The word of God has gone out. If you choose to deny it, guess what? Judgment, disaster. If you choose to receive it, guess what? You're going to experience the mercy of the Lord. And that's why I love the word relent. The word relent talks about an inward suffering. Meaning that God is not changing his mind. He's choosing to be faithful. He's going to fulfill his promise. How? Through suffering. And guess what? Everything about the Bible is not pointing us to our suffering, but to the suffering servant, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the one who's going to bear the full wrath of God on our behalf. He has absorbed the full wrath of God that our sins deserve. And so that inward suffering is fulfilled by Christ himself. Jesus is the substitute that we need, and he is the only substitute that we need. And God desires all to come to repentance because why? James says, mercy triumphs over judgment. Remember what Paul said in Romans, 12, uh, Romans chapter 2. Do, we not, uh, do you not uh, presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? And the beauty of the fact that God's mercy triumphs over judgment, that it's the kindness of the Lord that draws us to repentance. What are you doing with your undeserved second chance? What are you doing with it? I mean, and and please know that we're not just on chance number two, right? I mean, we can't even count how many times God has given us a second chance, right? The question is, what are you doing with it? Is there a renewed obedience in the midst of your restored life? Again, God's desire for you is not just to rescue you. It's to restore you, repurpose you for his glory and his kingdom and for your good. The question is, what are you doing with it? Second, where do you need repentance in your life today? As a follower of Christ, where is it that you're turning to other than God? Is there a deep mourning over your sin today? 
Are you turning away from your sin and constantly, day after day after day, receiving the mercy of God? Maybe you're here this morning, you've never received Christ as your Lord and Savior. Listen, repentance is for you as well. Turn to the Lord. Cry out to God. Seek His hope. The only hope that this world could ever offer you is found in Him. That's it. Are you willing to mourn over your sin, to call it what it is, to turn from your sin and turn to the Lord, receive the mercy of God, to know that it is finished. Everything that needed to be done to make you right with God has been done already in Christ Jesus. I guess the question for all of us is, is Christ enough? Is Christ enough for you today? I pray that he is. I pray that he is. So as we stand and sing, the altar will be open for you. to.